Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining me. On tonight's show, FN Arena's founder, Rudy Philippek Van Dyke, will give us his best five stocks that a newcomer to investing should have in his or her portfolio. Then lawyer Caitlin Ferris from Slater and Gordon will tell us why the law firm is taking a class action against A2 Milk. She'll also explain how you can join the class action for compensation if you think you might have been misled by the company's announcements or lack of accurate announcements. Then Marcus Bogdan of Blackmore Capital will pinpoint the one stock in the Switzer Dividend Growth Fund, which he manages, that has a lot of growth potential. And then Paul Mirren of M Square Capital looks at the Evergrande property developer fallout in China and weighs up if it's a threat to our property sector or the money markets generally. That's the show. Let's kick off with Rudy Philippeck Van Dyke of FN Arena. Welcome to the program, Rudy. Oh, I'm glad to be here, Peter. All right, Rudy, before we talk about the five stocks you'd recommend to be in a good portfolio for a newcomer or a person starting for the first time, I just want to talk to you about the A2 Milk news story. Uh, Slater and Gordon are, are making a, or taking a class action against the company. A, were you surprised that, that this would happen? And B, would you have expected something like this of a company like A2? Um, Peter, I, I guess to, to, to take off with, with the second part of your question, I guess when, when companies have to issue profit warnings, I guess there's always a, a, a disappointment with, with investors who may have just purchased the shares. And, and let's be honest, um, A2 Milk has been in a, in a declining trend since, since last year. So I can only imagine that there's, there's, there's hordes of investors out there that, that thought at some point, oh, it looks like good value. Mm. And then they come out with a profit warning and they've, they've issued a few actually. Um, so you can see why people get angry and they sus suspect that management surely uh, would have known better or, or should have known better. And, and it's always easy, of course, to, uh, to, to, in hindsight, start blaming them and, and start I mean, seeking some revenge, essentially, because people who lose money, as we both know, yeah. um, they, they, tend, they tend to lose their friendliness. <laughs> yes. um, but I must say, I, I, while I haven't uh, followed uh, the case very closely, um, uh, because I'm no longer a shareholder of Atribilk and haven't been for a while now, uh, I was a little bit surprised because I thought that... Um, Josh Feidenberg himself had, had uh, given uh, the corporate leaders in Australia a little bit of a, of a, of a time off from, from the, the pre-COVID, pre-pandemic um, uh, regulations and, and requirements. And I wasn't, I wasn't quite sure whether that had been elevated or alleviated or not, but maybe it, the, 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 the loophole here is that a 2 milk is officially a New Zealand company. Hmm. And maybe that's why they, they still have their New Zealand requirements and, and not necessarily uh, the free pass from Australia. Yeah. Interesting is that what, what the lawyer said to me in this, uh, coming up in the program was that, you know, the company basically blamed the coronavirus for its problems. But, you know, the, the, the so Slater and Gordon are arguing, you know, there were other issues that haven't hmm. been revealed. And, and I think a lot of shareholders may well have been caught out, Rudy, because, you know, we often talk about rules of thumb and often you say, oh, three downgrades and then it's pretty, it's relative. Well, they've had four 
And I think the, the fourth one was probably just enough. Like, what yes. in the hell is going on? Yes. So it's going to be a very interesting case because it, I can remember probably, you know, nearly two years ago in November when that Hearts and Minds conference on was at um, mm -hmm. at uh, the Opera House. Yeah. Um, one of the best fund managers in the country had picked A2 Mill and mm -hmm. uh, as a consequence, you know, she won the award as best fund manager. Uh, and I think she actually repeated her support for A2 mm -hmm. as well. And uh, a lot of people would have thought, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this is a great company, but things mm -hmm. are certainly going wrong. There's, all, there's only so much also that we can forecast. I mean, uh, we, we didn't really know the, the true aspects of, of the pandemic and of the lockdowns. And that has only become clear over the past year or so. And, and, and unfortunately, even if you can predict it, uh, if you're at the helm of the company, you can't prevent it. Right? It's, it's, uh, it hits you with a, with a big stick. Yeah. And, and certainly, I think they've also got the China-Australia problems, mm -hmm. lack of tourists, all those sort of things. There's a lot of moving parts. It's going to be a very interesting court case. But let's get on to why I grabbed you out of your serenity and your hard work to ask you the question. <laughs> now, what five stocks would you, do you like to or would you recommend people think about if they're putting together a portfolio? Number one. Yes, well... As a little bit of introduction, I, when I got the question from you, uh, I, I interpreted as follows. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that it's he or she is not young. He's on the, on the relatively young side and he's making or she's making their first steps into the share market. So they're quite young and obviously they, will, they have some other priorities and other views on life than, than us old geezers uh, of 50 plus. Um, and, I've, and, I've, and, I've, and I've taken a risk-adjusted approach in here. Like, I think people too easily think that when you're young, you can take all the risk of the world that you can, uh, because it doesn't matter, you have time on your hands. But truth of the matter is, risk does cut both ways, and nobody wants to lose their money. Yeah. So I've taken a risk-adjusted approach where I gradually, as I move down the rankings of my, of my selections, the risk increases. And so I, I, so I start off with uh, the opportunity that I believe has opened up in the recent sell-down. And the company is called West Farmers. And I'm pretty certain that I'll, I'll surprise quite a few people here. But I do believe that West Farmers offers uh, some of the old in, in terms of they have Bunnings and they have some other uh, consumer-facing businesses. But they also offer the new the new, the new future of tomorrow, because they are seeking uh, access to uh, materials that, that uh, are basically in, in, in vogue, because we are uh, moving towards electric vehicles and the likes. Mm. And they have a lot of cash, and, and they have an excellent track record. If we forget about their entrance in the UK a while back, that was, mm. uh, that was a blemish on, on their track record. But all the rest is actually moving their way. They have cash, they make the acquisitions, at the moment, they're in an acquisition. So I think um, this could be an addition to the to the to the to the portfolio. Also, in evidence that it doesn't necessarily mean by default that if you are a large cap company, that that you also or that you can't give a reasonable return to investors year in year out. And I think West Farms is one of them that that shows that that is happening. So the recent sell down, I think, has now opened up a, an opportunity to get on board if you if you're not there yet. Alternatively, if you really don't like West Farmers, there is the alternative of a similar uh, company in the themes, not, not in nature, and that would be Macquarie. 
But the problem with Macquarie is the share price hasn't moved. <laughs> and everything else has been selling off. So for that reason in itself, I would I would pick uh, West Farmers as, okay. as number one. So that's number one. That's and number Macquarie one. is not number two. It's either no, Macquarie could be, could be an equal, uh, yeah. but uh, you, you you start off of a less advantageous starting point. Yeah. But okay. but you're 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 both investing in the creativity and in the, in the staff and in the experience they have and in the ability and the track record they've shown over the over the past. Absolute quality companies. Let's go. Yes, to absolutely. Really. Now we're going to growth, and I think one of the the prime growth stories on the stock market is Resmed. And uh, a lot of people think Resmed masks for to help you breathing at night, but Resmed is very much linked into one of those new, what I believe are super trends. And that is that we are moving healthcare more and more to the home, uh, to a distance, to online, uh, mobile. And I think Resmed is at the forefront of that. So that is again, investing in tomorrow's future. Share price has come down. Excellent growth company, one of the best exporters we have in Australia. This should be number two. As an alternative, if you say, like, I don't like that mask thing, there's always the opportunity to buy CSL. CSL has come off, still one of the greatest companies we have in the history of Australia. So that could be a nice uh, alternative. And, and now, I feel, I'm also feeling here, Rudy, that you're giving me double value. Each time you get <laughs> one plus another, this is five will become 10. Brilliant. It's it's over-delivering. <laughs> it's un, under-asking, over-delivering. Okay. So now, now let's let's move a little bit further down the track. And we, we're going into smaller companies now and, and into now consumer-facing companies. Hmm. And I thought, well, one of the obvious ones here is uh, baby bonding. Hmm. Um, young people, they probably at one stage will start uh, their own family. Yeah. And that's almost by definition, they're going to they're gonna go to a baby bonding shop. Uh, so there will be that familiarity with, uh, with with the shop itself. And one of the beauty things here is, is that uh, they have gradually grabbed their market, basically the market dominance in that particular part in Australia. Mm-hmm. And that, that limits the downside and almost secures that they will have years of growth in front of them and they pay a nice dividend as well. Mm-hmm. Now, if you really want an alternative for uh, baby bunting, I would, I would suggest travel group. Breville Group, much more international character, and also very much linked into the future of tomorrow, because in a few years' time, our, our, our coffee machine will start communicating with the fridge, telling the local supermarket that we need more sugar and milk. And Breville is very much hooked into that new trend for tomorrow, for, yeah. the, for the future. I must admit, I, um, I succumbed you know, during this silly lockdown period to um, buying myself a, Bre- a Breville, you know, coffee machine, which is like a, a small version of what you see, you know, with the baristas use. And you know what? It works. It actually is brilliant. And, and it, I don't know. Also, Peter, I believe one of their best-selling ones is the one that allows you to make pizza at home. Pizza? Pizza. Oh. Right. I don't, yeah, I don't no know. <laughs> <laughs> for historical sake, was it Breville that one of the great boxes of, of our lifetime used to have a, some kind of griller was it, so that the angle saw all the fat ran off? That was a Breville product too, wasn't it? Um, I don't remember that one, but it, it sounds like one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there was a famous 
American boxer, like Evander. Ah, you're, you, you, you're thinking of, um, uh, was it Joe Frazier? Um, or was it the other one? Yeah, one of the boxers has his own brand. I know, I yeah. know what you're talking about. Yeah, I think yes. it was a Pro, but anyway, yes. move on. Anyway, so we were moving now into the smaller caps. So yeah. we're taking on more risk here. And I believe we have some excellent growth uh, in the small cap space without going overboard in terms of uh, insecurity, pie in the sky, you name it. And I've been, I've been a long-term fan of ProMedicus, a mm -hmm. uh, company called PME. And I still believe they, if, I mean, it's, it's hard to see. They just announced another big contract, $40 million. Um, they will announce more contracts. They are the best in their field. Uh, that's almost a security of growth that's happening. The only thing that is sometimes not happening is the share price. Mm. And um, it recently went to $70, way too high for the time being. And it has come off a lot. It's now at a, at a, at a, at a West Farmers price, mm. uh, early 50s. Um, not Still not cheap, but hey, you can't get these stocks cheap. They are very good stocks. So they are... In terms of growth and in terms of quality, um, one of the one of the prime small cap stocks, I believe. Um, if you really think, oh, I would like to buy one that is actually much cheaper priced, then the alternative would be, I believe, is Ordinate, uh, mm. and a company called this AD8, mm. and that all that too has come off in price uh, recently, and that could well be the the future dominant force into audio. Uh, technology. Um, still a small company, not profitable, but if you have time on your hands uh, and they've already make, made quite some progress, that looks like, uh, of course, we are we are now taking on more risk now. This is much more riskier than, yeah. than, than the West Farmers. Yeah. Now, if you come to number five. Now, hang on, hold on one second. Yeah. Um, Prometicus, for the people who actually are listening and enjoying this, which yes. I think would be at least the 20,000 subscribers to this channel, they always say, this is so good. Let's get this guy on more often. Really explain, A, what ProMedicus does. Okay. And, and on, with Ordinate, Ordinate is basically like a private version of Bluetooth, which should be a reopening beneficiary, shouldn't it? Like as events happen again and uh, yeah. international um, events and showcases and whatever, it's a company that's going to benefit from that kind of reopening. But ProMedicus... What, did, what does it do for yes. people who are wondering? Yes, yes. So if we go to hospital and we and, and we have like very big scans of like the CT scans and, and the big scanners, they, essentially what we're doing is we are creating very uh, heavyweight files of ourselves. And it's very difficult to, to share those files. For example, um, if if I wanna if I wanna consult a doctor who's maybe the best in this field, but he lives in California, mm -hmm. and I say, listen, I have this interesting case here, and I want you to have a look at this. How do I get my my humongous file to California? And that is a, that is a big challenge. Yeah. But, but but you also have simpler uh, applications. If you wanna if you wanna uh, if you want to know what is happening with your files, or you want to have a view in your files, or you want to share it with your GP, for example. Now, those files are way too big to transport. Promedicus has the technology at home that the file can be reduced to a very lightweight copy that you can literally uh, view on your mobile phone. Yeah. And, 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 and for that, uh, hospitals pay money and, and because it opens up so much more and they are the number one in their field yeah. 
and and that's why they're signing up all those all those uh, hospitals basically. And 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 the medical space is a growth industry because they yes. were aging and our demands upon the medical system is, is much more uh, uh, extreme compared to our parents who used to yeah. just cop it sweet and eventually pass away, I guess. We it's, will live forever, really. It's also like I, I just mentioned with with, uh, with, with ResMed, we are, the, the, the medical space is changing in that we are more moving out of the hospitals mm-hmm. at home on online applications and therefore, we are, the requirements are changing. We can't, we can't, we need lighter files basically that to be more accessible. Okay. The final yeah. Now we're coming into the, to the, I mean, I, I know young people, they, they like a punt. They like to do a, some speculation in their portfolio. So I, so I thought like, okay, if you really want to speculate, but also very tellingly, I think I've, I've taken four other ones with alternatives and maybe the fifth one, you put, you put, you put some more risk in your portfolio. And I'm thinking, decarbonization, uh, Bitcoin, blockchain. We have a few of those really tiny stocks on the share market that are exposed to that. And I can imagine some young people might want to have access to that, to, to, to that field. Now, we have a company called, which is Digital X, and they do blockchain uh, transfers with, with money. Very young, very, uh, but hey, the company called DCC, by all means, Go your hardest, and the other one is called Calix, C A L I X, and, and that, that, that's technology in terms of water purification and and and, and decarbonization and, and basically minimizing uh, greenhouse effects. C C X L, I believe it is C X L is the code, but again, we're really moving down the, the risk scale here, yeah. uh, which means a lot more volatility and a lot more risk. An alternative is that a little bit of a left field stock. Um, a lot of young people would, would be interested in gaming. And I still think uh, aristocrat leisure. I mean, I know it's pokies as well, but it is one of the prime growth stories. Large cap stock on the share market, uh, never really overvalued because it, it falls out of the, the framework for ESG-oriented uh, investors. But it is, it is a great stock and it has performed really, really well. And I think it, it still has a great future ahead of itself. And really, would that be another reopening trade type stock when the whole world gets back together? Like, for example, we know no one's going to, to Star, no one's going to Crown, um, and the aristocrat ledger has basically exposure to casinos, doesn't it? Yeah, it has, but obviously the irony is that it, it does well when we're going to lockdown because of the online gaming, course, yeah. and, it, and, it, and, it, and it, it benefits uh, from the reopening. Many of the stocks I've just mentioned, you can you can have that same argument with ResMed, you can have the same argument with, with CSL, with uh, Ordinate. Uh, so they may not necessarily be recognized as a reopening trade, but many of the stocks I just mentioned, those companies, they will benefit as economies open up, yes. Some excellent ideas, Rudy, and I think anyone who takes your education, not advice, could easily end up being wealthy in 10, 20 years' time. And they will always remember the name, Rudy Philippe Van Dijk. Thanks, Peter. Become an annual Switzer Report subscriber and get unprecedented access to my seven investing principles where I reveal the exact strategies I use to invest. You'll get access to an exclusive PDF, video recording, and even a free copy of my book, Join the Rich Club. 
With a 30-day money-back guarantee, a Switzer Report subscription is one of the wisest investments you can make towards your future. Find out more at switzerreport.com.au slash YouTube offer or click on the link in the description below. Well, it's not often that a company is sued by its shareholders, but in this case, H2 Milk is being sued and they're represented by Slater and Gordon. And I'm talking to Caitlin Ferris from uh, Slater and Gordon right now. Thanks for joining us, Caitlin. Thanks for having me. So uh, why don't you tell us why you're suing A2 Milk? So the claim essentially alleges that A2, as a publicly listed entity on both the New Zealand and Australian stock exchanges, misled the market by failing to disclose that it would not achieve revenue consistent with the previous guidance that it had given back in August of last year, um, until long after the company was aware of information that meant that it didn't have reasonable grounds for those representations. Okay, so in this sort of case, do you sue the company or do you sue the CEO that was representing the company or what? Good question. So in this case, we are suing the company directly, not the company's officers. That's because as a listed entity on both the New Zealand and Australian stock exchanges, it's the company that has obligations to disclose material information to the market so that investors are fully informed when they transact in their shares. Okay, so precisely what was it? This happens all the time. Companies don't necessarily produce the kind of results shareholders expect. And, and you guys wouldn't be taking this action unless you really believed that there were serious mistakes made by the, the key executives of the company. So, so just in a nutshell, what didn't they tell the market as a consequence? People obviously invested on the supposition that things were totally different. That's right. So the company had guided the market to expect strong revenue growth in FY21. We allege that it was structural and systemic stock management issues and not COVID, which is what the company originally pointed to as being responsible for, it, for its financial woes, mm. which affected A2's financial performance and that the nature of these issues um, meant that they would have been discernible by the company much earlier in the financial year than when the information was disclosed. I guess in a nutshell, the crux of the allegations is that A2 sales to what's called the Daegu or Daegu channel, which is a reseller channel, were ultimately driven by whether they could sell their product at a higher price um, to their customers in the Chinese market than what they bought it for in Australia and New Zealand. And in turn, their marketing activity was important to attracting new customers to A2's brand. We allege that A2 had pushed a high volume of stock through an alternative sales channel, which is the cross-border e-commerce channel, and that supply was therefore overtaking demand in the Chinese market, such that the price of the product started to fall, and that this meant that it was difficult for the Daigoo to achieve a margin on their sales. They stopped promoting the brand as much, which in turn meant that sales through the cross-border e-commerce channel also declined. Hmm. Um, who do you represent? What, what shareholders do you represent? So we represent, we act on the basis that we represent the, sorry, the entire class. So all group, all investors who purchased shares in the company between the 19th of August last year to the 9th of May this year, which is when the final corrective disclosure was. Mm -hmm. So we act for all of those group members. There will be an opportunity for group members to formally register their claims or to opt out of the proceeding at a later stage. And that will be um, pursuant to court orders that that will occur later in the proceeding. 
So what does someone have to do if they you know, didn't realize you were doing this, but they were actually a purchaser of shares in that period of time? What do they need to do to share in the, the win if a win comes? Good question. So ordinarily what happens in these cases is that the court will make orders that the company is required to distribute a notice to all of its shareholders and it does that through its um, share market operator. So for example, um, Link or ComputerShare will distribute a notice to all eligible group members telling them what they need to do in order to formally register their claims to participate if there is a successful um, result at the end. Okay. Would someone who registers then have to pay um, a part of the, the costs of, of participating? It's a good question. So we are acting on the basis that the lead plaintiff will seek what's called a group costs order um, from the Supreme Court of Victoria. This type of order would mean that we would be entitled to recover a court approved percentage from the amount of any damages award or settlement that might be recovered in the case if it's successful. But if the case is unsuccessful, then group members aren't required to pay anything and that and they can never be out of pocket from participating. So the amount that they have to contribute to the cost of running the proceeding will never be greater than the amount that they may be entitled to if the proceeding is successful. Okay, so what are you looking for in terms of compensation? So we allege that shareholders purchased their shares at a higher price than would have existed had the information been disclosed to the market. As you can probably appreciate, it's a fairly complex forensic economic exercise to separate out ordinary market movements from the inflation in the price that was caused by the information that we allege wasn't disclosed. And so we'll do that work through receiving documents from the company and working up counterfactual disclosures and then working with experts in the proceeding to determine what um, we will allege shareholders are entitled to in terms of a dollar value um, when seeking compensation. So just to try and put it clearly for people who might not understand. So imagine if you guys uh, prove that the, the share price was $5 higher than it would have been if the truth had prevailed in the market and someone was holding a thousand shares that would be effectively a loss of $5,000. And then you guys would take the percentage that you're entitled to and the left, rest of it left over for the shareholder in yeah, simple terms. That's essentially correct. Yes, of course, um, if that, that is the question of what can we prove the share price was inflated by? And that's obviously always going to be subject, particular in a, particularly in a settlement context, to considerations around risks of running the litigation and of going to trial. But yes, in simple terms, that's the correct way to put it. Okay, and what has the company said? Have you obviously you guys have, have talked to the company and you didn't like what they, they've said, and that's the reason why you're going to court? Is that so? We informed the company yesterday, we issued proceedings against the company yesterday. They've issued a release to the ASX and NZX today, um, stating that they intend to vigorously defend the proceeding, which is a common type of announcement that we see. Um, in this field when cases are issued against against companies on behalf of shareholders. Okay, and when do uh, proceedings start? Do you know that? So ordinarily the court will require us to come before it for first directions about six weeks after issuing. So I anticipate that that will happen before the end of the year and that will be an opportunity for us to set a timetable for the rest of the proceeding. Okay, well, it's a, it's a very interesting uh, case. There are a lot of shareholders involved and a, and a company that was very highly regarded by the market I think when the share price fell, a lot of people just presume, well, okay, two or three downgrades and it'll turn around and start improving. But 
this is a very interesting part of the story that a lot of people wouldn't have known about. And uh, I guess I should wish you good luck. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for joining us, Caitlin. No worries at all. Thanks, guys. Well, joining us now is Marcus Bogdan, who's the fund manager for the Switzer Dividend Growth Fund. And we always like to focus on stocks that pay, pay dividends and we'll kick off on that. But I also want to ask him, what is the one stock in the portfolio that he thinks has a real growth potential? Marcus, thanks for joining us. Terrific, Peter. Good to be here. So, so what are you seeing now and how is it influencing the way you invest in the fund? Well, at the moment, we're seeing uh, signs of slowing earnings per share growth, slowing economic growth at a time uh, when we've got rising inflation and rising bond yields. So that suggests to me that we need to be defensively positioned in the portfolios with companies that have got pricing power uh, and also a tilt towards those companies uh, where there are acute shortages, such as energy. Uh, and we express that through our holdings in both Ampol and Santos that have done uh, particularly well over the last month or so. Those two stocks, do they pay dividends or are they primarily a growth part of the, of the fund? No, they do pay. Uh, they do pay dividends, uh, and uh, Ampol uh, has had the ability previously to have um, off-market buybacks, uh, and they also have significant franking credits uh, that are expected to be released uh, to investors uh, over the forecast period. Okay, looking at the at what's going on in the Australian economy and. <clears throat> your stocks are primarily local stocks. Um, what is your expectation about dividends over the course of this financial year? Are they going to keep on rising? Yes, I think they are because uh, earnings growth, which is incredibly important for dividend growth, uh, has uh, come back from around 15% to 10%. Uh, but it's still positive. And I think the companies that we are focusing on are those companies that will be able to continue to grow their earnings. Companies such as Amcor, Brambles, West Farmers, Woolworths, uh, the expectation is that uh, we'll be able to continue to see further growth in dividends uh, over the course of the next year. Yeah, I know you can't be certain about this, but what's your approximate guess, guess of what the collective dividend yield will be for the fund over this year? Well, I think we can we can manage a dividend yield of well over four percent, maybe four and a four and a half percent for the for the portfolio, uh, and we believe that uh, that the dividends from the companies that we own are sustainable and they will grow over time. So, so anyone who's in the fund then might, might be expecting a, a return around four plus franking credits? Correct, yes. Right. Now, so we primarily talk about with you because you're, a, in a sense, a specialist in picking stocks that pay dividends, but the, the fund is a growth fund as well. So I want you to tell us what stock in the fund do you think has the best upside growth potential? Well, we do like 
Amcor in the portfolio. Uh, the company has demonstrated that it can grow its total return of over 10% per annum, uh, and, and that is a stated target for the company. And that is broken up into uh, capital, capital growth in terms of earnings per share growth, dividend growth, uh, and they've also uh, initiated uh, each year um, a substantial buyback as well. So we think that the profile there for earnings growth is sound uh, and that will, will be supported by also very good dividend growth. And, 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 yeah. and it's also important to state that, uh, you know, what we would classify Amcor is a defensive industrial company. Uh, it is a global company, but it supplies its products mostly into the consumer staples market. And so there is a, a level of stability there. And there's also importantly, uh, as prices are rising, the ability for, for um, Amcor to pass through those raw material costs to the end producer. Yeah. For people who don't really know much about Amcor, can you just give us a, like a, a brief history of the company? And also say, explain to us if they're advantaged by the fact that because of the coronavirus, a lot more people are going to be buying online than ever before. And is that going to be like a structural plus to Amcor's future? Well, the irony is that um, people are buying more and packaging has become even, even more important in terms, in terms of protecting the safety of the go goods that, uh, that are being delivered to, to, cut to customers. And so Am Amcor is one of the largest uh, packaging companies in the, in the world. Uh, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it has both, both rigid and flexible packaging. Uh, and the areas that uh, it is mostly focused on is the consumer goods area, but it also does a significant amount of packaging for the healthcare sector, mm. both in materials going into hospitals and, and having them to be, to be um, sealed uh, appropriately, and also into the pharmaceutical industry as well. So it's at the higher end in terms of the sophistication of, of packaging, and that gives it its global competitive advantage. Great stuff, Marcus. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Peter. Cheers. Become an annual Switzer Report subscriber and get unprecedented access to my seven investing principles where I reveal the exact strategies I use to invest. You'll get access to an exclusive PDF, video recording, and even a free copy of my book, Join the Rich Club. With a 30-day money-back guarantee, a Switzer Report subscription is one of the wisest investments you can make towards your future. Find out more at switzerreport.com.au slash YouTube offer or click on the link in the description below. On the program now is Paul Mirren from M Squared Capital. And I want to talk about Evergrande, the Chinese property developer, in a lot of trouble. Uh, and what are the implications for the world uh, in the, the money space that M Squared Capital works in? And also, What's the implication for investing in Australia? Paul, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Peter. So just set the scene. You've, done a, you've written an interesting piece on Evergrande. Just to set the scene, what happened with this company and why it's in trouble? Well, look, uh, it's, it's, there's two main reasons. It's 
the demand and supply in relation to property in China. That's the first reason. And the second is the overuse of debt. Now, Evergrande has come into the spotlight just recently because it defaulted on uh, two payments. And I think they've defaulted on another, uh, another bond payment as well, a third one just recently as well. Um, that's why they've come into the spotlight. Um, but really, if you really look at Evergrande, they've been in the news over the last 10 years of a, a company on the brink of collapse. So the real question here is, how did a company that has been so indebted in China that has the same amount of debt that are uh, equivalent of debt in uh, China, it's about $400 billion worldwide, uh, has the same, it's equivalent the same size of New Zealand's GDP, for example. Mm -hmm. So it's a sub substantial amount of debt. It's the most indebted company in, on, on the globe. Um, and how will it have impact to Australia and the global market? Okay. Uh, those are the questions. Well, what is the exposure of international lenders, financial institutions to Evergrande? I'm led to believe it's nothing like Lehman Brothers, for example, yeah. and, and, the, and the way that collapse of Lehman could really rock the financial system. Is Evergrande in any way in the same neighbourhood as Lehman Brothers? It's not in the same neighbourhood because uh, the GFC was caused by derivatives and the and that debt was sold all over the world in large much larger quantities um it is it's not it's not 100 accurate accurate but um they estimate that there's about 22 billion dollars worth of international bondholders in america could be australia uh, around the world um so it's not a significant amount but what is significant is the china story um the significance of this is is that property or pro, uh, the property sector, it contributes about 25 to 30% GDP a year of the Chinese economy. Um, China contributes about 30% for the last decade of the world GDP. So, so the fact that um, uh, it's not, a, I don't think it's a situation where you're talking about one company in isolation. You want to really want to be looking at, does the Chinese property market work in the current state? Um, and will it have flow on effects as well? Okay, have you seen forecasts of um, Chinese GDP uh, as a consequence of a major blowout from Evergrande and other developers like it? Okay, look, um, there have been some economists who have been saying, well, it's going to take half a percent off uh, GDP uh, in China or 1%. Hmm. Um, but it's very difficult to know. Um, if you look at uh, the fundamentals of the Chinese property market, the reason why they've gone to such a level is that you've had, and it's an amazing story, you know, in, in the last 30 years, you've gone, you've, China's be, become a second largest economy in the world. Um, per capita, they were one of the poorest on, on this planet. They've taken 1.4 billion people from country areas and they've built mega cities. Um, the amount of construction that's happening at the moment uh, for example, it's estimated that there's 19, that 19 million dwellings being built on a yearly basis. Now, that is more housing that we have in all of Australia, that they are developing on a yearly basis as well. The fact that the, the other interesting thing as well is that they have an oversupply of property at about 90 million at this present moment. The reason why they have such an oversupply of property is that a lot of Chinese people who have done a very nationalistic thing is by an a, they want to be part of the, the, this boom, and they're being told uh, or uh, given an option to invest into property. Now, 
there, there is 22% of all the housing supply in China is empty because 68% of all the net wealth the Chinese hold is in these empty properties. Mm. Now, these are fundamentals that are completely outside normality, uh, where I think that it's going to take the Chinese government a long time to deflate those prices and come back to some type of normal demand supply. Yeah, so, that's, so that's the issue. in a sense, what you're saying is that Evergrande was a great supplier of those ghost cities that we've been hearing about for decades. I think most of us might have thought, oh, well, the government probably produced those and therefore they can basically allocate them as they go along. But there is this, this uh, private, in the commas, private uh, corporations uh, like Evergrande who are very, very exposed to this whole situation. What's the, what do you reckon is going to be the implications for the international money market? Well, look, effect or manageable effect? I, I think a really good um, a quote from uh, Howard Marks is probably appropriate here. Mm -hmm. is that investors have to be worried when they see th three things in the market. When there's too much money in the market, not enough opportunities, and they completely disregard to risk. So it's just a reminder to investors that these things can happen and it could create a bit of a credit crunch in relation to um, uh, 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 the supply of money into different types of sectors. So if I'm an investor, I'm going to say, well, instead of lending money to someone like uh, Evergrande was acceptable and I was lending at 6% you know, return, I was expecting, and I'm completely unsecured and it's a highly leveraged company, um, just on the basis that I think that the Chinese government will bail out the company if it all falls to a heap. Um, those investors now thinking, well, you know what, there's a lot more risk associated to it. So it, it only changes a sentiment in relation to investors for a credit crunch or a credit cycle to start changing. Um, so I think there is implications here. Okay, well, you, you, M Square operates in the credit market. You know, yeah. You guys, um, you know, taking money from savers who want higher interest rates and are prepared to take the risks of going into um, funding developments and things like that. Yeah. Know, or business loans. Are you are you worried that there could be an Evergrande effect on the in the space that you play in? That's a great question. The reason why I've looked at the Chinese story in so much detail, because out of curiosity, I wanted to understand the fundamentals of difference between the fundamentals of the Chinese property market and the fundamentals of the Australian property market. The reason why the strength of the Australian uh, fundamentals are so strong is that we have a independent RBA that controls interest rates. We have a shortage of supply of property. Um, the other thing that we have from a demographic perspective is that hopefully once we come out of COVID situation, now Australia pre-COVID had the second largest immigration per capita mm -hmm. in the world. So all of these fundamentals are quite important in relation to having a, a healthy and strong property market. Uh, another very important aspect as well, where we're seeing with the the difference between China and Australia, we don't have empty properties sitting there. We don't have people having no opportunities to invest money and then buying a property just for it to be vacant. Property in Australia is a healthy um, asset class where it's productive. So you either buy it to live in it and enjoy it or you buy it for your yield. You don't buy it just to store wealth. Um, interesting enough, in 2015 or, or close to 16, um, when there was the last time we had macroprudential authority come in very strong 
in relation to investors. The one thing that they did bring in is that if a non-resident was buying an investment property in Australia, they had an additional tax that would be paid if they left it vacant. Okay, so now that becomes a very interesting topic. Why do they do that? Well, they, they, they wanted to make sure that the assets that you have in Australia is very productive. Uh, they want to avoid this whole situation that we have in China right now. So, the, you know, um, this is why the sector in Australia is very, very strong. Okay, so you're comfortable about the Australian sector. Before we go, mate, just one quick one. Uh, APRA's decision mm -hmm. now to make uh, interest uh, loans harder to get by putting yep. a, a bigger serviceability buffer in there from 25 to 3%. Yep. What do you think that's going to do to the market in terms of, you know, the, the space that you play in? Well, look, I, I think it's a very healthy thing to do because what they're trying to do is to create, uh, it, it's unsustainable for the, for the market to continue going the way it is right now. Mm. Um, I think earlier in the year, uh, we talked about uh, the RBA modeling and that, that the RBA modeled that they were expecting in, uh, property prices to go up 30%. And it's quite, quite funny enough, Sydney's gone 28%. And now we have macro prudential authority come in. You will take the heat out of the market because um, it's a ripple effect. Because if I go to my bank and they're only going to lend me $2 million instead of $2.5 million, that affects my affordability. Um, and then it's just taking the less, less people in that larger bracket into a smaller bracket. Um, and it just, it just condenses everything down. So it's, it's, it's a ripple effect. So we do, expect, we do expect that property prices probably will stabilize. The prices won't go up. It might even fall a little bit in the interim. The other thing that's coming in now, because we've been in lockdown, the supply of property or people willing to sell the properties have been very small. Mm. Uh, we expect the listings to be quite significant in the next half year. Mm. People are going to take opportunities of these higher prices. So I think those two elements will actually probably stabilize the prices. But I, I don't see the prices falling more than 5%. And, the mac and this particular macroprudential um, uh, intervention is is nowhere near as significant as it was uh, in 2018 when they were attacking investors. So some, some stability. Paul Mirren from M Squared Capital, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. And that's the show for tonight. Thanks for joining us. If you want to know more about investing, have a look at the Switzer Report. Go to switzerreport.com.au. There's a 21-day free trial if you want to have a look at what we're doing there. Thanks for joining us. I'll see you on Monday night.